Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the creeds and why we have them and what they are. If you have a question on this topic, uh, feel free to call me at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K and at the number four persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up at Facebook. Look me up on Facebook. So let's get started here. Before the Christians had a New Testament, Christianity was defined through the creeds. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. A very basic creed is Jesus is Lord. And you have to understand at the time of Uh, the apostles, you know, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, for a person to go around and say that Jesus is Lord could potentially get you killed because at that time, the only person that was able to be recognized as the Lord was the emperor in Rome. He was the person that lorded over the whole Roman Empire. And if you were in the Roman Empire, he was your Lord. But just as Jesus says to um, Pontius Pilate that he, his kingdom is not of this world, and Pilate recognizes that, oh, so you are a king. 
And so Jesus is a king. He is a Lord, but his kingdom is both in this world and the next. And we are subjects of Jesus' kingdom in this world because we want to continue to be his subjects in the next. Or when Jesus comes back to set up his new kingdom here on earth. The new Christians, what Jesus taught the apostles orally in the very beginning. And if they wanted to become a Christian, they would be baptized. But before being baptized, they would recite a creed, which would summarize what they believed to be true about Jesus. They also went through a period of, you know, being taught the faith, and that period could go as long as three years. Now, for Jews that already knew the Old Testament, you know, it was very easy for them to move right into Christianity. But for someone who didn't have a Jewish background, they would need to learn more about the Jewish roots of Christianity, basically, uh, because Christianity didn't just start all by itself with the New Testament. Christianity is based on the Old Testament and Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Law and the beginning of the New Covenant. So that's why it was a whole lot easier for Jews to become Christians than Gentiles to become Christians. However, at that time also, the Jewish Christians, a lot of them had a hard time giving up the works of the law of the Jewish covenant with God. And they continued to try and push those Jewish works of the law on the Gentile Christians. And that's why Paul continues to say over and over that we're not saved by works of the law, because we're not saved by the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, which is the new covenant. And so when Paul talks about when not being saved by works, you need to know what kind of works he's talking about. And in Acts chapter 15, they had the Council of Jerusalem, and at that council, they would they established that Christians are no longer bound by the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws. And that decree, which was binding on all Christians before they had a New Testament, was sent out and spread amongst all the Christians at that time. So the first creed that we have recorded is in the New Testament, and it was written in the first five years of Christianity, and it's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And this is what it says. Now I am reminding you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received and in which you also stand. Through it, you are also being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. That he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, that is, died, after that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born abnormally, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, 
I am what I am, and his grace to me has not been ineffective. Indeed, I have toiled harder than all, the, all of them. Not I, however, but the grace of God that is within me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul is talking about here that, let's see, he's, well, first he talks about how he's reminding you, brothers, of the gospel are preached to you. Now, for many Protestants, when they see that word gospel, you know, they're talk, they think, of course, some verses out of the New Testament. Um, and not necessarily the four Gospels written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the good news that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected. But note here that Paul says that he preached it to them. He didn't read to them from the New Testament. He preached what he had learned from Jesus and the apostles. Paul also writes about how they are being saved. So that shows that salvation is a process, an ongoing kind of process. And then Paul says that if you hold fast to the word I preached you, that means you don't just assent to a belief at one point in time, but you continue to live and uh, follow that belief that you received. So it's not like you can just profess Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and you don't have to do anything else. Paul is telling us that we have to hold fast to what was preached to us. And then he goes on to say that if you don't hold fast to it, then you have believed in vain. That means your salvation is going to be lost. And another great thing that Paul points out here is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. Um, there, some people who try to dismiss Christianity think that, you know, each time that we have a, a record of Jesus appearing to the apostles or an individual, that they were just hallucinating. But, you know, over 500 people can't have that same hallucination at the same time. And Paul tells us, you know, go ahead and ask them. They'll tell you that they saw Jesus. He is willing to let people challenge the faith because there were still people around at that time that uh, had seen Jesus after his resurrection. And Jesus uh, reminds Matthew that, or no, Thomas, uh, that blessed are those who be believe who have not seen. So, Great reason to believe that Jesus is God and that he was resurrected from the dead. So we have great reason to continue in the faith even now, even though we didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. And another thing Paul points out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that in the beginning, he was persecuting Christians. And yet God's continued to call him, and by the grace of God, he became a great apostle for the Catholic Church. And he writes about how he has toiled harder than the others to make up for that persecution he did of the early church. So the next creed that we have 
is what we now call the Apostles' Creed. And this existed in various forms in the first century of Christianity. When you became a Christian in many of the early Christian communities, you would recite something comparable to the Apostles' Creed. And as I mentioned, there's, there were local variations, but the Creed of Rome is the one that's closest to what we now call the Apostles' Creed. There's a story that each of the 12 apostles contributed contributed a line to the Apostles' Creed since it has 12 sentences. Many sentences are based on passages in the New Testament. The Apostles' Creed we cite now is an updated version of the Baptismal Creed of Rome. And the oldest copy of this creed is from 390 A.D., and this is the creed that we recite as the Apostles' Creed. And notice how it starts out with, I believe, because this is a creed that a new Christian would be reciting to become a Christian. So, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come and judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, some people question the line in the Apostles' Creed where it says that Jesus descended into hell. And in our modern times, people are confused about what this word hell means, because when we think of hell, we think of the hell of the damned, the people that are not going into heaven or who didn't go to heaven. The original Greek word was Hades, and that was translated into, which was the Greek word for the place of the dead, was translated into English as hell, but because it's still the place of the dead. And if we go back a step further to the Jewish roots of Christianity, the Jews believed in a place called Sheol. And Sheol, that was the place of the dead for the Jews. Sheol had a good part, Abraham's bosom or paradise, and it had a bad part, uh, sometimes known as Gehenna. In Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man, it talks about, Jesus talks about how the rich man ends up in the bad of Sheol, uh, Gehenna, where there's fire and people are constantly roasting. And the rich man asks Abraham to send to have Lazarus dip his finger in a pool of water and just let him 
lick the moisture off of the end of Lazarus' finger. But Abraham explains to him that there's a large chasm, you know, like a canyon in between the good part of Sheol, Abraham's bosom, and the bad part of Sheol, Gehenna. So there's no way for Lazarus to go over there. So this helps us understand the Jewish understanding of the place of the dead, Sheol, which is understood in Greek as Hades and English as hell. When Jesus descends into hell, these are the souls in prison or the spirits in prison that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Jesus went to preach this spirits in prison to let them know that after he ascends into heaven, they too can go to heaven also. So when we recite the Apostles' Creed, that's the hell that we are referring to here. It's not the hell of the damned. Jesus didn't need to go to preach to those people in the hell of the damned because there was no way those people were going into heaven. Now, as Christianity grew, um, there were many people that came up with different ideas about God. And since Christianity was illegal, it was hard for people to, um, to stomp out these heresies. Uh, and in the early 300s, there was a... Let's see. Yeah. A bishop named Arius uh, who taught that Jesus was not the same as God and not co eternal with God the Father. And actually, a majority of Christians at that time, at least Christian leaders, believed that Jesus was not co eternal with the Father. Most of those bishops were in the East, but you also have to remember that Christianity, you know, originally was founded in Jerusalem and then moved to Antioch, um, and Alexandria was a major city at that time also, and those are all cities that are more toward the eastern end of the Mediterranean basin, and Rome is more toward the western end, but since Peter and Paul died in Rome, that's where Christianity was pretty much centered, you know, as early as 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. There's an early Christian writing called First Clement or First Clement to the Corinthians, you know, depending on how long they make the title. But basically that letter came because the church in Corinth was having a difficulty and they wrote to the church in Rome for guidance on their difficulty. And the Bishop of Rome sent a letter and a delegation back to the church in Corinth to work that out. So even as early as 70 AD, the church in Corinth, which is kind of in between the East and West, uh, they wrote to the church in Rome. They didn't write to the church in Antioch. They didn't write to the church in Jerusalem. They didn't write to the church in Alexandria. They didn't write to the Apostle John. They wrote to the church in Rome.
And to add on to that, you know, when Clement, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope at that time, sent a letter and a delegation back to the church in Corinth, they listened to the guidance of that delegation and the Bishop of Rome. And they continued to celebrate this event for 300 or more years after that. And the letter First Clement was shared among many of the early churches to help give them guidance in early Christian practice and faith. So we understand from the very beginning that the church is centered in Rome, but there are different ideas around the Mediterranean basis, basin of how to understand Christianity. Now, there was another bishop named Athanasius, and he had a creed <clears throat> that helped explain Christianity and to counteract the false ideas spread by Arius. And this is the Athanasian Creed. Whosoever shall be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. And Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, which was a major Christian city in the East. But he's still talking about the Catholic faith. And he says, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So if you don't hold the Catholic faith, then you will be, you, know, you will end up in hell, basically. And since it's everlastingly, you don't get out of hell. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father, uncreate, the Son, uncreate, and the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, uncreate. The Father, incomprehensible, the Son, incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit, incomprehensible. The Father, eternal, the Son, eternal, and the Holy Ghost, eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. And it is very difficult for us humans here on earth, especially in our modern times, to think of three persons being one. We're used to one person, one being. The Trinity is three persons, but one God. And 
Oh, I have a, a writing on how the Trinity existed from the beginning. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll get to that today or not, but we'll cover it another time. So the Athanasian Creed goes on with, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son, Lord, the Holy Ghost, Lord, and yet not three lords, but one lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian ver verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, we are so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. And then this is another key passage in the Athanasian Creed. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but preceding, or proceeding, yes. So in this one sentence here, we understand that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after the other. None is greater or less than the other. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born into the world, perfect God, perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by making the manhood into God, and altogether not by confusing of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, he ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, 
from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. In quick, old English way of describing alive. So come to judge the living and the dead. At those at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting and they who have done evil things into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith which except a man believe faithfully and firmly he cannot be saved. So the Athanasian Creed is kind of long but there are a lot of parts in that that you may recognize if you recite the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was written in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. There was a lot of confusion about Jesus being fully God and fully man and co-eternal with the Father. And that was a heresy developed by a bishop named Arius who taught that Jesus was not the same as God and not co-eternal with God the Father. And we see, see the same heresy today in the Jehovah Witness uh, version of religion. You can't really call them Christians because they don't really have a proper Christian understanding of Jesus. So in 325 AD, they got together, all the bishops and priests got together in, in a city called Nicaea, which is near what was what later became Constantinople because but is now known as the city of Istanbul in Turkey. So if you ever wonder where they wrote the Nicene Creed, it was in what we now call Istanbul in Turkey. So this is the creed that they developed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And it was the Nicene Creed of that time. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father, I'm sorry, the Son of God, only begotten from the Father, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended into the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. And the Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed also adds this part at the end. But as for those who say there was a time when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that 
The Son of God is of a different hypostasis or substance, or created, or is subject to alteration or change. These the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. So what they're saying here is that those people that believe in these wrong things, you are outside of the church. And if you are outside of the church, you are not heading for heaven. And so the bishops took this creed back to their local um, bishoprics, their diocese, and they used this to help give the correct understanding of Jesus and the Trinity to their people, to the members of the Catholic Christian, Catholic Christian Church at that time. Because, like I mentioned earlier, you know, there was a lot of confusion on how we are to understand Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And you can see that this Nicene Creed from 325 mentions that we believe in the Holy Spirit, but it's not, doesn't really define how the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. And a lot of people grumbled and you know, may have, you know, like said that they agree with the creed, but deep down in their heart, just like the Jews that were continued to try to push the works of the law on the Gentile Christians, they still tried to push the idea that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. And this was especially a problem in the Eastern churches, you know, from Nicaea to Smyrna, Antioch, Alexandria. And at this same time, the Emperor Constantine was uh, building his new city, Constantinople, named after himself. Wouldn't we all like to have a city named after ourselves? <laughs> so anyway, because this idea of the Aryan understanding of Jesus was still held by a lot of people, even though they agreed to sign on to the Nicene Creed, the bishops sent out missionaries from Constantinople and other Eastern churches to spread the faith to the barbarians, you know, Russia uh, and Eastern Europe and things like that. So later on, those barbarians that get converted to Christianity are taught a corrupted version of Christianity because they're taught an Aryan version of Christianity. And later on, those same barbarians start attacking the city of Rome. So because there was still confusion about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, they held another council in 381 AD in what is now the city of Constantinople. And they developed a new creed there that we now call the Nicene Creed, but at the time it was the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed because it is a creed that grew out of two different councils. And the Nicene Creed 
expanded on the original Nicene Creed from 325 and included the full divinity and eternal existence of the Holy Spirit. It also helped define the Trinity as one God and three persons. Around the year 600 AD, the phrase, and the Son, and and the Son, when written in Latin, is just the word filioque. And that filioque was added to the Nicene, the Nicene Creed in the Latin-speaking churches in the West. And this was added to help correct the lingering effect of the Arian heresy. The word and the son, well, the words and the son, or filioque, is not said when the Greek-speaking churches recite the Nicene Creed. And remember, like I said, the Arian idea that Jesus is not co-eternal with the Father got spread to the West by the bishops sending out missionaries to the barbarians with incorrect teaching about Jesus. So that's why in the West, it was necessary to add, and the Son, clarify that the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. So here is the Nicene Creed that we now recite today that was a product of the Council of Constantinople in 381. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I profess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So we see a lot of the original Nicene Creed parts in here, but we have much further clarification on the Holy Spirit. And in the Western Church, we have and the Son, because the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, just like Athanasius, an Eastern bishop, taught before there was even a Nicene Creed. 
The creeds help define our faith and promote unity among Christians as something we can all agree on. Many Protestant churches use the Nicene Creed in their worship services. The Nicene Creed provides a starting point to build help. The Nicene Creed provides a starting point to help various Christian denominations define what they agree on. May we build on this foundation to come to the unity that Jesus prayed for in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus says, He wants all of us to be one like he and the Father are one. Now, the Latin word filioque, or the English phrase, and the Son, was added to the Nicene Creed in the West to help refute the Arian heresy that had spread to the West. And as I mentioned earlier, the Eastern Christian missionaries who were taught the bad theology of the Bishop Arius converted the barbarians in Eastern Europe, who then moved into Western Europe before Western Christianity spread to that area. During the controversy over the divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it was the church in Rome led by the Bishop of Rome that held the correct final interpretation. The procession of the Holy Spirit from God the Father and Jesus the Son is easily understood from John chapter 14, verse 26, and John chapter 15, verse 26. We are told that the Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name in John 14:26. Then soon after, in John 15:26, Jesus says, When the Counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father who proceeds from the Father. Jesus says that the Spirit is sent from the Father and himself, leading us to conclude that the Spirit proceeds from both. Taken together, the two verses show that Jesus teaches that the Spirit comes from both the Father and himself. There's nothing to cause us to believe that Christ taught that the Spirit would be sent in one way from the Father, but in a different way from himself. Since this way is identified as proceeding in John 15:26, it follows that proceeding is also the best way to identify the way the Son gives the Spirit, thus allowing us to come to the doctrine that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is the, what the Latin word filioque means. The same relationship is reflected in Acts 2.33, where Peter states that Jesus has received the Spirit from the Father and sends it to him. One proof is the Holy Spirit is referred to in scriptures as both the Spirit of the Father in Matthew chapter 20 verse chapter 10 verse 20 and Romans chapter 8 verses 10 and 11 in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21 to 22 and in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 and as the spirit of the son in Romans chapter 8 verse 9 Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 Philippians chapter 1 verse 19 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. So statements saying that the Spirit is of the other two persons of the Trinity indicates that his person is tightly bound up with and originates from them, just as the Son is the Son of the Father. That word of you know, really connects them together. Pope Leo I declared that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son dogmatically in 446 AD. Although the concept was discussed by church fathers both East and West in earlier times, it was made part of the creed for the first time at the Council of Toledo in 589 AD. Now for those of us in the US, you might think of Toledo as the city in Ohio, but actually this Toledo, I believe, is a city in what we now call France. The Orthodox Church, um, which was largely, at this time, the Orthodox Church didn't act, actually exist, but it was the Eastern bishops. Anyway, they resented the Bishop of Rome adding this word filioque, on his own authority without the approval of an ecumenical council. Most Orthodox Christians understand the theology to be, be correct, but they still are offended by the overreaching authority of the Bishop of Rome when he added it. It is just tension between the Eastern and Western churches. So you have to understand, even in 589 A.D., and in the 400s, that among throughout the Roman Empire, Greek and Latin were the two common languages. And Greek was spoken mostly in the eastern part of the Mediterranean basin, and Latin was mostly spoken in the western part of the Mediterranean basin. And by Mediterranean basin, I mean like where the Mediterranean Sea is and all the area surrounding it, because Christianity was all around the Mediterranean Sea. And the basin just refers to like the low place where the water gathers. So even in the West, there were still people that spoke Greek primarily, and even in the East, there were still people that spoke Latin, but Greek was primarily the language used in the East. And the you also have to understand that at that time, because Constantinople was the new center of the Roman Empire, people who lived in the eastern part of the Mediterranean basin thought that they were the leaders of the Christ, Christian world, shall we say. And because Rome had become an old city and was starting to deteriorate badly, you know, the city of Rome was considered a city of less importance. Um, the all the the rich, smart people lived in the eastern part around Constantinople, and the old, poor people lived around Warren, Rome in the western part. So 
humans being humans, they thought of the the western part of the Roman Empire to be more backward than the eastern part. So when the Bishop of Rome added this word filioque to the Nicene Creed, they took great offense that you know some bishop and who's of less importance out there in the West could just up and add something to the creed. A philosophical explanation of the filioque clause is found at the Council of Florence, which stated in 1439, since the Father has both through generation given to the only begotten Son, everything that belongs to the Father, except being the Father, the Son has also eternally from the Father, from whom he is eternally born, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. And that's in the decree for the Greeks from the Council of Florence in 1439. This interpretation was held by many early church fathers, East and West. Therefore, it is both biblical and historical and mutually understood by Christians in both areas. Popes John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI have recited the Nicene Creed jointly with the patriarchs Demetrius I and Bartholomew I in Greek and yet they did not recite the filioque clause, which is, and the son. And in a joint statement of Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic theologians, the filioque was discussed at the 62nd meeting of the North American Orthodox Catholic and Theological Consultation in 2002. In October of 2003, the council issued an agreement, an agreed statement. The filioque, a church dividing issue with a question mark. And it says, in the judgment of the consultation, the, the question of the filioque is no longer a church dividing issue, which would impede full reconciliation and full communion. It is for the bishops of the Catholic and Orthodox churches to review this work and to make whatever decisions would be appropriate. So all the theologians got together and figured out that there's no reason to be fighting over the filioque anymore. And it's up to the bishops to work out how they're going to get over this uh, problem of about the filioque. And I think it has a lot more to do with human pride than it does with actual sound theological understanding of where the Holy Spirit comes from. And people are have a hard time admitting that they're wrong, and they have a hard time accepting the authority of other people. The purpose of the creeds is to remind us of what we believe. And they should be recited every day with reflection, not just words. The creeds help define our faith and help promote unity among Christians as something we can all agree on. Many Protestant churches use the Nicene Creed in their worship services. 
the Nicene Creed provides a starting point to help various Christian denominations define what they agree on. May we build on this foundation to come to the unity that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus says he wants us to all be one like he and the Father are one. And for me personally, I think that, you know, it would be very easy for the church in the West, the Roman church, the Catholic church, agree to not use the filioque anymore, even though it's a sound theological teaching. But if we give up the filioque, you know, and the Greeks will join us in sharing the Catholic faith again, I'm willing to give up the filioque. Because the Orthodox churches, they understand the theology behind the filioque. They just have a problem with the Western church adding the filioque. And, you know, it's not something that we need to fight over anymore. There's much larger and more important things to fight over than one concept added to the creed later on. And so if the church, if the Catholic church is willing to give up the filioque, I think it would be good for the Orthodox churches to accept the authority of the Bishop of Rome. Uh, the Orthodox churches recognize that the Bishop of Rome is the prime bishop, the uh, the greatest bishop, the bishop of greatest honor in all of Christianity. But they do have a hard time accepting that the authority of the Bishop of Rome uh, and the idea that the Bishop of Rome can give a dogma dogmatic decree to the whole church, all Christians have to believe on his own. And of course, in the Catholic Church, what we call papal infallibility is not something that where the Pope just walks around, you know, saying new things every day, and that is now a dogmatic belief for all Catholics. No. The idea of papal infallibility is that the Pope, through great study and discernment, can give binding decrees to all Catholics, all on his own, as opposed to holding a whole council. And it's the same concept that is used by councils, going back to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, that the church gets together and they, after much discussion and prayer, and research and hammering out the ideas, uh, they come up with an official teaching for the church. So the Pope is not a dictator that just makes up new things and all Catholics have to believe them. The Pope gives everyday guidance to the church and we should assent to what the Pope teaches and do our best to use what the Pope teaches to live the Catholic faith every day. Now, in the Orthodox churches, 
they have broken up more and more into different churches that are headed by the local patriarch. Um, so we have the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox Church, we have the Russian Orthodox Church, we now have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and there are other uh, Orthodox churches in the eastern part of the Mediterranean basin. And each of the patriarchs are the head of their own church in their own area. So like the Greek patriarch can't tell the Russian patriarch what they have to believe in the Russian Orthodox Church. And we should all continue to pray for unity in the Catholic Church so that the Orthodox churches in the East can be reunited with the Catholic churches in the West and the, also the Catholic churches that are in the East. Many people don't know that the Catholic Church consists of the Roman Rite and 22 or 23, depending on how you want to count them, Eastern Rite Catholic churches. So there are many versions of the Catholic Church besides just the Roman Rite. The Roman Rite just happens to be the largest and most common in our time today. Uh, when somebody says they're Catholic, most everybody assumes that you're a Roman Catholic. But you could be a Maronite Catholic. You could also be any one of the other 22 Eastern Rite Catholic churches. And the great thing is, is that, you know, if you're a Roman Rite Catholic, you can still go to those Eastern Rite Catholic churches and experience the, the divine liturgy in a different way. So that's all we got for today. I got through about half of my notes here. <laughs> so if you want to get all of my show notes, I'll have them posted on our on the four persons blog talk radio page and website. And you can also send me an email, Ken at the four com and I'll send you the show notes. Or you can look me up on Facebook and if you'd like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can email me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to others and the rest of the world. Thanks for tuning in. Bye for now.